Hello and welcome back to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host Jonathan Chan, and you can also find me on Twitter at jchanpharma. So it's been a while since our last episode, and I wanted to bring you some updates about what I've been up to. Uh, firstly, I hope everyone's staying safe from COVID-19. Life has changed a lot in the past few months, especially with the outbreak pretty much keeping everyone indoors for the most part. We in Asia have largely survived wave one of the outbreak, and right now, you know, we're seeing the U.S. and different parts of Europe try to contain the pandemic as well. Uh, I gotta say, it's pretty weird to see that because Asia should have been a warning sign for the West to take this virus seriously. I don't know. Maybe it seems like we as humans are not very good at taking warnings. China didn't take early warning seriously. We now know. Uh, Dr. Li Wenliang first sounded the alarm to colleagues and authorities about a potential SARS-like infection spreading among people in Wuhan.、Um, yeah, he wasn't taken seriously.、Uh, it looks like in the beginning.、Um, and looking at the outbreaks in Europe and U.S., it looks like they didn't take the risks of an outbreak seriously enough either. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it's human psychology.、Uh, maybe we're just Optimistic in nature, maybe we just assume everything works out on its own. But I think for us in Asia, we're we were slightly more prepared because one, some of us went through SARS already, so we've been conditioned to take these things more seriously. And two, we're also used to wearing masks, whether for personal hygiene or for fashion or etiquette. We're pretty fine with covering our faces. It seems like. A、uh, high school buddy of mine who grew up in Hong Kong and is now a doctor in the UK told me that he was told not to wear a mask at his clinic because it scares people. But you know what's bizarre? If you don't wear a mask in public right now here in Hong Kong, you're the one that's going to scare people. But、uh, regardless, it's a good wake-up call for all of us to take these outbreaks seriously. But because of the COVID nineteen outbreak, a lot of work has come up. And I haven't been able to speak to Asia healthcare companies as normally as I would have liked,、uh, which brings me to my second update. Quite overdue, but I have joined Stat News to launch a weekly newsletter called Stat China, covering China's biotech sector. And if you don't know Stat News, it's a sister publication of the Boston Globe, focusing on news stories surrounding health, medicine, and life sciences. And I know I'm biased here, but I feel like it's one of the best online news publications for the pharma and biotech sector. So you should definitely check it out.、Uh, there's tons of free content on the site, and if you want access to even more in-depth premium content, you can pay for a Stat Plus account for a monthly subscription. But the good news is that the Stat China newsletter, along with other newsletters from Stat, is all free. So There you go, free content. I might record a separate episode to talk about the Stat China newsletter, but briefly, it's a newsletter where I summarize important developments out of China healthcare. Now, China is a pretty big market, and the newsletter is designed to be a two to three minute quick read, so it's not going to cover every story out there, but it is going to highlight some of the bigger stories in the sector, such as important drug approvals. Uh, partnerships and government policies that could affect global pharma's who operate in China.、Um, these could include things like drug pricing and reimbursement, and maybe some supply chain or quality control situations. 
And with more and more biotechs going public, the China market is getting more and more exciting. And so far, I've gotten great feedback about the newsletter. So thanks for everyone who supported me so far. And if you haven't already, sign up now. Okay, moving on. Earlier this month, as part of an occasional segment on the newsletter, I sometimes try to interview senior executives in the China biotech space to get to know them a little bit, ask them how they ended up in the industry, and for them to share their experience in leading their organization. And since social distancing has made it hard for me to meet people face-to-face, I was lucky enough to be able to do a Zoom video chat with Hutchison China Meditech CEO Christian Hogg. China Meditech, or ChiMed for short, has been around for at least two decades, developing both herbal medicines as well as innovative Western drugs as well. It's listed on the London Stock Exchange and on the NASDAQ, and they are based in Hong Kong. So I wanted to talk to Christian about how he started with the company, what they've been working on recently, and how they've been able to navigate through the recent COVID-19 situation. So now I present my catch-up with Christian. I guess we should start with the first question. So for people who may not be familiar with ChiMed, can you tell us a bit about the company? Sure. So ChiMed is a biotech company focused on uh, primarily on oncology. Uh, we've been operating for almost 20 years now. Uh, one of the first biotech companies to really become established in China. We have spent the last 20 years building out a, a discovery organization and clinical development organization and now manufacturing organization, uh, primarily focused on small molecules and developing small molecule therapies for various types of cancer. So we now have eight clinical drug candidates uh, in, in clinical trials, one of which has been approved uh, for quintinib at the end of 2018. Uh, two more, savalitinib and surafatinib, that are at NDA stage. So surafatinib, its NDA was submitted uh, late last year, and savalitinib, its NDA will be submitted probably next month. So our first three drugs have basically made it all the way through to NDA, either NDA approval or NDA submissions, which you know, which is a big deal. It's it's taken it takes a long time to to discover an oncology drug and bring it all the way through. And now we've been successful. Hopefully, we will be successful with our first three. Separate from our and, and on the on the innovation side, we have a team of over five hundred people now in Shanghai and Shuzhou uh, that are supporting this this innovation activity. On top of that. We have a commercial organization, now over 3,000 people across China, detailing various drugs to, to physicians a, a, across China. Very profitable business for us, and that helps us pay for this deep investment in research and development. So, you know, we, we started from nothing uh, 20 years ago, have built a fantastic innovation platform, creating a lot of cancer drugs, and also have built a very large-scale commercial organization in China uh, that you know makes makes a lot of money and, and enables us to to conduct the research that we're involved in. And as I understand, I was reading back on um, some of the history of the company. As I understand, you were ChiMed's first or one of the first employees. 
back in the year 2000. So I was the, the first employee. <laughs> so what do you remember from that first year and um, how much has changed? I mean, do you remember uh, what you, you were working on the first year? Yeah, well, actually, when, when we started out, the idea was uh, actually traditional Chinese medicine. The idea mm -hmm. that Hutchison sort of got behind and recruited me to start up was how can we take traditional Chinese medicine, modernize it, and globalize it? That was the original idea. And actually, that was triggered by, by a speech that the, the original chief executive uh, in Hong Kong, Tung Chi Hua, when he made his first policy address in 1997 at the handover, he made a statement that he wanted to turn Hong Kong into the Chinese medicine port for the world to bring Chinese medicine from China and take it globally. So that was his original sort of dream. And so ChiMed originally started out down that path, looking to identify botanical medicines that we could modernize and, and globalize. And we worked on that probably for the first five years. And it wasn't easy, you know, establishing ourselves in the TCM space. Actually, we did a couple of joint ventures, one with Shanghai Pharma, one with Guangzhou Pharma, where we went into China and we actually got hold of TCM, Chinese medicine asset, which have since gone on to be very successful and, and, and lucrative for us. But that first five years was, was spent primarily focusing on, on the TCM side. Now, we did start out the innovation side during that time because I felt that if we were going to modernize and globalize traditional Chinese medicine, we, we needed to have a research base. We needed to have a science base to do that. And so I started hiring uh, scientists from North America to come back to Asia to start looking into the science behind Chinese medicine, you know, the chemistry of a lot of these herbs. And so we built a small team, maybe around 60, 70 people, uh, from 2000 to 2004, something like that. And, and that team was focused a lot on, on TCM. But then in 2005, we hired our chief scientific officer, who's a, uh, an individual uh, named Dr. Waiguo Su. And, and Waiguo had spent many years in America at uh, getting his PhD and his postdoc at Harvard under Nobel Prize winning medicinal chemist, Professor E.J. Corey. And then he spent 15, 16 years at Pfizer in their small molecule oncology and immunology and metabolic disease area. And when Waigo joined us in 2005, we decided to really go, go heavily into small molecules. And we, we kind of diverged from the Chinese medicine uh, and focused in on, on research on the small molecule synthetic drug side and really led by Waigo over the last uh, now 15 years. We've built up one of the most powerful discovery organizations in the small molecule space uh, in China. You know, so it, it starts, it always starts in one area. And then as you go along, you realize, actually, we need to be in the oncology space. So we, we in 2005, we really focused in on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, for a lot of global pharmas, for the better half of the last decade, they've been, you know, doing their innovation work in the U.S. market and EU and thinking of ways to how to get into the China market. Whereas for China, it's a little kind of almost reversed, right? You, you are focused on China 
and then bringing your innovation to the U.S. market. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in two, two key things that, that drive our strategy as a company. The first is that the China market and the unmet medical need in China is enormous and represents probably the biggest single opportunity uh, that exists in the pharmaceutical world today. Uh, I think oncology exemplifies that because, you know, you've got 30% of the world's cancer patients are in China, roughly. So the unmet medical need there is so great. It's the place to be with regards to emerging biotech and pharmaceutical opportunities. So that's the first thing. And that's why our, our, our foundation and our base has always been China. But the second thing that I'm a huge believer in is the intellectual talent of the scientific community in China. Uh, not just in China, but also those tens of thousands of very highly qualified uh, young people that went off to America and to Europe to get their PhDs, to go work for big pharma, big biotech. You know, the quality of that talent is extremely high. And so when, when we look at that talent, and building a team of very high quality people in the biotech space, we're not just thinking about creating drugs for the China market. We're thinking about creating drugs for the global market because we have the capability to do that. So ultimately, those are our two platforms. Number one, a solid foundation in China where there's a big market potential, a big medical need. But number two, harnessing the intellectual talent of this Chinese scientific community to really start to innovate for the global market. And I think there are a few companies that are trying to do that, not many. We're obviously doing it. Beijing is obviously trying to do it. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of others. But I really believe that 10 years, 15 years from now, China will be the source of a lot of the innovative therapeutics that make it to market globally. Today, the main source is North America. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit, a little bit from Europe, but I think 10, 15 years from now, China is going to be going to be a major. Maybe it won't have overtaken the U.S., but it's certainly going to be uh, close. And uh, it's because of the quality of the people and the quality of the of the scientific talent. Going back to um, ChinaMed's pipeline, you mentioned a couple of drugs that you had been working on. So, can you tell me a little bit about each of these drugs and also? You have partnered with Global Pharmas before to develop, um, I believe, two of these drugs so far. Can you also tell me a little bit about how partnerships have helped shape maybe the, the pipeline and um, sure. your growth of the company? Sure. So um, just going through them quickly, probably our most valuable asset and, and program that is furthest along globally is Savalitinib, which is a selective CMET inhibitor. CMED inhibitors benefit patients with uh, either mutations or amplifications of CMET, which is a protein involved in cell signaling, a receptor protein involved in cell signaling. And CMET becomes a genetic driver of uh, cancer cell proliferation in many different solid tumor settings in lung cancer, in kidney cancer, in gastric cancer, in colorectal cancer, in prostate cancer. And so what savalitinib is, is a highly effective inhibitor of this particular protein. Uh, it essentially shuts down cancer cell proliferation. 
So we've been working, we partnered with AstraZeneca on Savalitinib. Uh, we entered a partnership in very late 2011, a global deal. And we've spent the last, the last eight years uh, developing Savalitinib in well over a thousand patients in many different solid tumor settings. So it's our biggest value driver. We currently have a program globally in a what's called a phase two registration study, a combination of Savalitinib and Tegriso. Tegriso is obviously AstraZeneca's most successful oncology drug launch in many years. And um, the issue with Tegriso is that when patients progress on Tegriso, uh, around 30%, potentially 30% plus patients progress because of CMET gene amplification. And that's why AstraZeneca came to work with us and to partner with us to proactively address this resistance to, to, to Griso. And so we have, we have a big study right now uh, that we hope will read out this year, uh, mid-year, and give us a, a, a sense of are we able to accelerate savalitinib to approval in combination with Tegriso to address that resistance. Uh, we also have big kidney cancer programs on savalitinib as well that will be in phase three hopefully later, later this year. Our second drug is Frequintinib, which we're partnered with uh, Eli Lilly. Frequintinib is a VGFR inhibitor, shuts off the blood flow to a tumor, cuts down angiogenesis. It's been approved in China in colorectal cancer. We're about to start a global phase three in colorectal cancer as well. We own the rights outside of China. Lilly owns the rights for commercial inside of China. So Frequintinib is very exciting drug, very clean drug and is perfect for combinations. So what we're doing also is working with uh, PD-1 antibody manufacturers to combine Frequintinib with uh, Cintilimab from Innovant, Genolimzumab from Genor, and we're also looking at some combinations with other PD-1 players. So Frequintinib is very exciting, exciting program. The third program we have is Surufatinib. And surafatinib is a, a dual inhibitor of VGFR and CSF1R, uh, also hits FGFR1. CSF1R is involved in the production of tumor-associated macrophages. So surafatinib downregulates uh, the, the production of these tumor-associated macrophages, which then allows T cells to come in and kill the cancer cell. So surafatinib is our first unpartnered drug that we are going to launch hopefully this year. The NDA went in late last year, and we've, we've got some wonderful clinical data, phase three data in neuroendocrine tumor patients, and we hope to get that approval this year and launch. So those are the three first wave assets that we've got coming through, all of which are being developed globally, as well as NDAs either at approval or close to approval in China. You know, so they're, they're, they're our, first, our first wave. We then have a second wave of assets in the hematological malignancy space, so it's a PI3K delta and a SIC inhibitor, and now we have a, an IDH12 dual inhibitor. That, that second wave of hematological malignancy assets is, is really all in proof of concept at the moment. We hope for those to start migrating into registration studies maybe later this year, the PI3K delta certainly. And then behind that, we have a whole raft of early stage assets that are going to be entering into clinical trials over the next couple of years, two, three, four years, both small molecules and large molecule assets, and all of which have been created in-house by our uh, discovery organization.
So that's the that's the sort of the scale of it. A good first wave now hitting the market, a second wave of hematological malignancy assets that are going through proof of concept, making their way to registration studies, and then a very exciting portfolio of novel drugs against highly novel targets that are coming behind that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a very uh, promising pipeline, um, a very big pipeline. So you mentioned, I guess, wave one is you know hitting the markets now. Surufatinib is your first unpartnered uh, asset. So moving forward, will you try to develop these other molecules unpartnered as well? Or would there be opportunities to maybe find suitable partners? And you also mentioned you know, some of the programs where you're looking at could be possible combination therapies. So how do you find that balance and you know, whether, how, how do you figure out if partnering will be yielding the better outcome versus doing it solo? Well, I think we won't ever partner again in China. All of our assets we will bring to market uh, ourselves in China. Um, We have the commercial infrastructure to do that. We have the commercial know-how to do that. So, for example, I mentioned our commercial platform in China. We have over 3,000 salespeople across China, 2,400 medical reps in China. But those are not in oncology. Those are in cardiovascular health and, and other areas. So for the launch of Surafatinib, uh, we're building our, our, our dedicated oncology team at the moment. Uh, right now, uh, we're up to close to 200 people on the ground, uh, oncology uh, commercial organization. By the middle of this year, it'll be about 350 people uh, in readiness for the launch of Surafatinib late in the year. So we can pretty much do everything we need to do on these assets discover them, develop them, and then commercialize them in China ourselves. And by doing that, we retain more of the economic value because, you know, while partnering is great because uh, generally brings in cash when you need, you know, maybe in times of need, you are obviously giving up a lot of the economic value to a, to a third party. So for China, we'll never, we'll never partner our assets in China. We'll bring them all to market ourselves. Outside of China... Uh, I've mentioned, you know, AstraZeneca and Savalitinib, that's a global partnership. Astra will commercialize Savalitinib. And, you know, frankly, they are in a very good position to maximize the potential of Savalitinib globally in lung cancer, which is their speciality. So that's, that, that's a good partner. And, you know, we will benefit greatly from that partnership. On Frequentinib and Surafatinib, we are developing them outside of China ourselves. We've built a team now of uh, clinical regulatory people in uh, New Jersey, in Flora Park, New Jersey. It's led by a uh, very capable group of people. Um, and that, that team now, third, between 30 and 40 people, are developing our drugs outside of China, our drug candidates outside of China. As they go through, the first two, Froquindinib and Surafatinib, are now in the last, in late stage. So Froquindinib about to start a global phase three, and Surafatinib, potentially, we could be seeing an NDA being submitted late this year if the data from the big phase threes in China is acceptable to the US FDA. That would be our, our hope. So those assets are now coming quickly into late development outside of China. If the right partners emerge that we feel can maximize the potential of those assets as they get approved, uh, then we'll consider it. 
but equally, if we feel that we want to bring those assets to, to market ourselves, then we'll build commercial teams to do that. You know, I, I think we have a lot of experience running commercial operations in China, and I don't think establishing a dedicated team to, to launch Fruquintinib and Surfatinib, both of which are GI cancer assets. So you're, you're dealing with the same group of physicians on both of those drug candidates, one colorectal cancer, one yeah. for neuroendocrine tumors. So I think, I think we'll, have, we'll have the potential to build out our own teams as well there. One question I want to ask is the current coronavirus situation. So a lot of businesses have been affected, including pharmas who do their R&D programs in, in China. And especially for ChinaMed, I know that a lot of your programs do take place in China. So can you tell me how has the outbreak impacted ChinaMed so far? And, you know, if you've done any mitigation or uh, adjusting business to cope with that? Yeah. So that's a really complicated question because you, you have to look at every aspect of what we do separately. So our mm -hmm. commercial team has been very much affected in a different way than our regulatory organization who's dealing with the CDE. You know? mm -hmm. uh, so each, each part of our business has been affected to a different extent. But the overall, the overall summary of, you know, where we stand two months after, after this outbreak really kicked in, which was at the end of, end of January, early February, is that I'd say for the first two weeks of February, it was a period of adaptation and improvisation and trying to figure out in this sort of lockdown environment how to keep the business running. I think we were very successful in improvising on the commercial business. I think our commercial business has, has not been too badly affected by, by COVID-19, you know, in terms of sales and the profit of our business in the first three months of this year, it's, it's pretty much as we expected. So I think on the commercial side, uh, we haven't had too many issues. I think on, and, and now, you know, early March, uh, sorry, early April, we are, you know, I think we're, I wouldn't say back to normal on the commercial side, but pretty close. With regards to the innovation side, the running of clinical trials and interacting with the Chinese regulatory authorities, the running, running clinical trials has been a challenge for patients because patients were not mobile. They couldn't get to the hospitals. They couldn't get to see their, their physicians and their clinicians. So we had to improvise delivering drug product to patients at their homes. Uh, having those patients interacting with their physicians by video or by, by telephone. So, you know, it wasn't perfect, but we managed. We managed. One thing where we did get hurt, I think, is the enroll new patient enrollment into clinical studies was slow because, you know, patients were not going to the hospitals. It's quite a procedure uh, to be selected to go into a clinical study. It requires a lot of testing and a lot of a lot of work on eligibility. So that definitely uh, slowed down almost to a halt, actually, in February. But in March, it's come back quite quickly. And now I think it's starting to see enrollment uh, picking up uh, in, our, in the studies, not just for us, but for everybody. The last thing is the regulatory side, the area that I've been most encouraged by is, you know, we have we have an NDA submitted last year, at the end of last year, that we're in constant dialogue with the 
uh, Center for Drug Evaluation, the CDE. We've got another NDA that we're about to submit uh, next month on Savalitinib. Uh, and so we are in constant dialogue with the regulatory authorities in China. I am so impressed by them. They have not missed a beat at all over this two-month period. Very supportive with regards to NDA submissions as well as as well as uh, uh, application uh, and inspection activities, and and so, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, I just take my hat off to to the NMPA and the CDE, uh, having been able to to kind of keep the ball rolling in oncology when when they were facing some pretty big challenges on the on the COVID side. So, so in general, in summary, yeah, it's been it's required a lot of improvisation. But I think we're in we're in a pretty good position now. That's encouraging news. So my last question will we'll end on a more positive note. This is this year is actually your twentieth anniversary with ChimeMed. So can you share any memorable moments you've had uh, with the company in the last two decades, and um, anything to look forward to in the coming years? <laughs> so how long did you say you have? <laughs> 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 you know, 20 years is a long time. Uh, and when we started out, biotech wasn't really, wasn't really an industry in China. It was, mm-hmm. it was just an idea. You know, companies like Wuxi just really invested so much effort into building the biotech ecosystem in China, helping companies like us, you know, really get established and do what we do. So I, I'd say, over those 20 years, the most memorable things, I think the most memorable thing was the approval of Frequentinib. And actually, even more memorable than that was the positive phase three. The day we got the positive phase three in colorectal cancer for Frequentinib, right. uh, that was in March of 2017. And that came after 17 years of effort of, of coming to work every day, you know, convincing people to give us money, uh, <laughs> you know, investing in, in a dream. And, you know, March 2017, I was, I was genuinely touched uh, when that phase three read out positive. You know, up until that point, it was all still sort of hope. But uh, when that came through, it, it all, it all made, made it worthwhile. And, you know, but that 20-year period, it's been really very challenging, particularly the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. You know, as a biotech, we were burning money. Uh, we had no access to resources. And so we had to partner with Eli Lilly, and we had to partner with AstraZeneca, and we had to partner with Nestle uh, just to go and get the resources to stay alive and stay afloat. And so those those tough times make a company, and they make the people in a company and they give them resilience and uh, persistence. And, and so, you know, through those years, it's been, it's been very challenging. We've had, you know, we've had some great people working in ChiMed through those years. Some have left, some have stayed, but for the most part, this business this developing and creating innovative therapies in a field such as cancer just requires unbelievable persistence and determination and you know that's those that's what i remember through the years is never giving up fighting some really big fights sort of staying on our feet and uh, it gives me a great deal of satisfaction so that gets us to where we are today 
So the next question I'm sure you'll ask is, what about the next 20 years? <laughs> and, you know, this last 20 years, this last 20 years, as far as I'm concerned, has established the foundation. I think over the next 20 years, ChiMed becomes an absolutely world-class, global-scale uh, pharmaceutical company. We have such a solid foundation, such a solid platform on the innovation side, on the development side, on the manufacturing side, on the commercial side, that now we have all the tools available to us to really make a big difference globally. And that's what will take us to a much higher level. Um, so all that effort over the last 20 years is, is towards getting us to where we are today to give us a shot at you know, a really glorious future. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're well positioned to take advantage of that. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more news, positive news, positive readouts from ChiMed and um, seeing more uh, innovative medicines that you can develop to help patients in China and globally. So, yeah, I'm very happy to talk to you and um, keep up with the company. So thanks very much for your time. Um, right, sure. Yeah, hopefully we can, you know, catch up again sometime. Great. Yeah, don't, don't, don't leave it 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Great. We'll definitely check in more regularly then. Good, good. Thanks, Sean. All right. Thank have you. a good day.